0: Playwrights Local and Radio on the Lake Theater present Heirloom, written and performed by Mike Geither. My mom is dead. A fact not lost on my friend Dan. His mom is dead, too. It's a peculiar humor that's evolved between us. It goes, knock, knock. Who's there? Your mom. My mom who? Mike, she's never coming back. Dan, why did your mom cross the road? Why? Well, you know, technically she didn't cross it. She was taken there in the back of a hearse. <laughs> Donna Marie, born November 27, 1931, died November 23, 2005, four days short of her 74th birthday. Diabetic, like her mother, three of her sisters, and four of her children, including me. A real physical inheritance. She'd had all the worst things that come to diabetics. Uh, Neuropathy, blind in one eye, amputated toes, heart disease. She was about to go on dialysis when she died. Her last weeks were trying. She was on a respirator for a few days and decided to come off. You know, decided to die. My siblings and I were moping around in a waiting room when my youngest took his first steps. So... Some of the hardest laughs are to be had under extreme circumstances. And one came to my sister Sue and I when we were staring at the floor. Uh, My dad came into the waiting room, sat down and said, You know, if she dies, we're going to have to call St. Francis Parish right away. Michael, run in and ask your mother for the number. Something that bears telling here is that I ended up with a couple of regrets. In between coming off the respirator and the 10 days she lived in hospice, I was able to tell her everything I wanted to. Thanks for a fantastic life. I love you. I'll miss you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I called. I visited. I sat at her bedside with my dad and siblings, except for the last four days. Yeah. My mother was in hospice dying, and I didn't visit for the last four days of her life. I know now it was because I had slipped into pretending, right? Her dying didn't really get in the way of a sort of fairy tale I was making where she wasn't dying, and I could go out for Indian food. I mean, I can see how it happened. It was more convenient to believe she wasn't dying. It was certainly less sad. And so I did. This is my first regret. It has a sort of physical shape, you know? I feel like I could drop it on the floor if I could reach under my ribs and bring it out. Oh, oh, hold on. The other regret is why we're here. And before I hit second gear, there's one important thing you should know. Everything I'm telling you is true. All of it really happened. I've changed names, dates, and identifying information, but the soul of it is true. It's like if I told you I bought a blue car, but I really bought a green car, like that. Or uh, like I bought a, a blue car, but I didn't tell you that it had a leather interior. Or maybe that it was a flying car. Or that it had done such amazingly strange things that I had to write a solo performance about it. Also... All the information I'm about to share comes from a common interest in my maternal family that I share with my oldest sister, Sue. She's 11 years older than me, the youngest of six, and she's a better researcher, more dogged, and she knew the people involved better than I did. I owe a lot of these stories to her. They would have disappeared before I knew them. And it's going to get complicated, nonlinear, but trust me, it'll all add up. So, Edward. In the photo I'm thinking about, he's in full US military uniform. It's the 1880s. With his right hand, he's resting his bugle, bell end, on his thigh. His left hand is holding his sword, whose tip is resting on the ground. His right foot is pointed outward to affect ease, a sort of photographer's trick I've seen in other photos of the era. But the ease is undercut by his eyes. They drift left towards something not in the picture. The first time I saw this photo, I choked up. I had seen a few other pictures of him, but despite the look of doubt, he seems happy. He seems to be surrounded by the things that brought him joy. The bugle, the sword, the belt buckle, the uniform. Uh, And he looks exactly like my cousins. You'll have to take my word for it, but the resemblance is disarming. Edward is my great-grandfather, my mother's father's father. I know from research that he had a dog bite on his right forearm. Edward spent 10 years in the Army. His discharge order says that he spent six years in, quote, the campaign against the Sioux Indians, unquote, in the infantry, then re-enlisted in the 7th Cavalry, where he served four years, notably at the Wounded Knee Massacre in 1890. When he left the military, he got married in Cleveland and started a family— Mary and he had seven kids between 1898 and 1913. The oldest was John, my mother's father, my grandfather. We don't know much about Edward and Mary, but I'll give you what I have. In 1916, Mary dies of cirrhosis at the age of 37. Edward is 50. There he is, seven kids aged 20 months to 15 years. He's driving a streetcar for a living, he's depressed. He's an alcoholic like Mary. There's a story that he's trying to give his children away to riders in Shaker Heights. There's also a story that he's giving out free rides, and he gets fired. There's the wall. There's the writing. He swallowed carbolic acid. He drank lye. You know, Drano. It's a horrible way to go. He vomited blood over the kitchen table and floor— Two of his daughters, ages 8 and 12, found him when they came home from school, October 21st, 58 days after Mary dies. Can you imagine what those two months were like? What's really remarkable to me is we can skip over them, not really knowing any of the details, or skip over a line like, he's trying to give his children away to riders in Shaker Heights. But maybe that's why we have fiction I researched Edward about as thoroughly as I knew how. Sue and I even paid a specialist to comb the National Archives for details about him after we learned he was at Wounded Knee. He was both the bugler and a sharpshooter for J Company. He killed innocent people, I have little doubt. And by the time he got to Wounded Knee, he'd already spent eight years propagating genocide. When he commits suicide, none of his seven children are adopted into the same place. The family effectively no longer exists, and no child has a brother or sister to grow up with. So, at the age of 15, John, my grandfather, goes into an orphanage. He leaves, and we think takes up with a friend of his mother's, 30 years his senior and a camp follower slash prostitute. In terms of records, he resurfaces on July tenth, 1918, when, at the age of 20, he marries Lillian, age 17, my grandmother. But let's take a second. What kind of hole gets put in your chest when this happens? When you have no real home, no parents, no brothers, no sisters? I imagine it's the kind of hole you might not even try to fill. You might just put your shirt on and hope nobody notices. Meet my mother's sister, Vera. I remember her visiting in 1975. I was 10. I didn't know anything about her except that everyone thought of her as a chore. My brothers and sisters, who were only teenagers, called her, Mmm, Aunt Vera. I said, Yeah, Aunt Vera. But I remember she was nice to me, and I was surprised. Sometime in grade school, Vera visited again. That's when my brother explained to me, that she wasn't who I thought she was. Vera, as he told me in the backyard when I was 12, is the offspring of my Aunt Ruby and her oldest brother, Del, who had raped her. So there's no real word for my relationship to her, not really aunt, and not really cousin, and no real word for how her origin becomes a secret and what that secret leads to. The story of Vera's birth as uncovered by my sister Sue while building the family tree. My Aunt Ruby is 14 and pregnant. My grandmother, Lillian, who has real signs of mental illness, is in bed withering away. She's told Ruby is pregnant and dies a month later of kidney problems. My mom is seven. John has moved them to a farm outside Cleveland, and Ruby is living in a shed behind the house to avoid the truant officer— and hide the pregnancy. John comes home drunk to the news that Ruby has delivered a baby girl. She's been assisted by her oldest sister, Catherine, and Catherine's fiancé Vernon, who've been reading up on how to deliver babies at the library. John's response to the news is to take his shotgun out of the closet and head toward the shed. Catherine and Vernon stop him, I'm, I'm not sure how, and send him back to the bar with money. Vera is eventually passed off as John's daughter. So, imagine the hours and days after the birth. It's something John clearly couldn't do. I mean, if there are three things that stay consistent in the stories about him, they are that he drank, philandered, and disappeared. He did maybe all three for a week. And in that week, Catherine, the eldest, keeps the family together. And the family looks a little different. Ruby is back from the shed. There's a new baby in the house. And there's Donna, my mom, age seven, three months removed from her mother's death and thinking all the time of her twin brother. I wonder, at what point does the new baby become a secret? At what point is she told not to talk about it? My guess is right away, but it's just a guess. What's not a guess? John comes back at the end of this week with his new wife, Marta. Marta is Hungarian, a taskmaster, and very loving. I can only guess at what she saw, but within three months, she kicks all of the boys out of the house. Del, 17, Glenn, 14, Wes, 9. 9 and out of the house. Del, who raped Ruby, joins the Navy. Glenn goes to a sort of home, but a different one from Wes. Over the next nine years, new wife Marta slowly turns John into a social drinker and into the grandfather my sisters remember, the quiet, kindly real estate agent whose only observable faults were popping out his glass eye and eventually smoking cigars through his tracheotomy. And I want to say that there was some kind of peace in the house for a while. Catherine, the eldest, marries Vernon and moves out. And for years, it's only the young girls, Ruby, Donna, and Vera. But imagine Ruby. For the next nine years, she lives with a daughter she can't acknowledge. A living, speaking, daily reminder of her rape. There she is at the breakfast table. There she is meeting me to walk home from school. There she is sitting next to my boyfriend at Thanksgiving. And there's my sisters, and they know. And are they ever going to talk to anyone, late at night, a sleepover, when they just have to tell someone? And for these nine years, the boys are coming home on weekends. Everyone at the same dinner table on Saturdays and Sundays. Everyone knowing what's happened and not speaking. And every moment outside the home, pretending. If word gets out, Dell could go to prison. Their father, too. My father's marriage proposal to my mother was, do you think you can handle me and six more like me? So, she's 39 with six kids. I'm four. We're at a grocery store where she has a small disagreement with the cashier that I witnessed something like, oh, is that the price? Oh, oh no, ma'am, I'm sorry, let me fix it. That night at dinner, she tells my father, she set it on the counter and I told her to
1: shove it up her ass. Then she gave me 15% off.
0: It's the first time of many that I remember taking stock of who she was versus who she pretended to be. I mean, we all do some amount of this, right? We exaggerate, paint ourselves how we want to be seen. But for my mother's whole life, there were two fairly distinct individuals, her and her around other people. Did I mention my mother is a twin? Her brother Donald died in a flu epidemic when the two of them were 37 days old. She thought about him a lot, and uh, not just when she learned about prime numbers. I think he occupied a lot of her thinking. Look, two things I inherited from my mother. One, the wolves, and two, the feeling that I am and will always be deficient. Now, I'm dealing with number two, but number one is cut in something like stone. And when I say I inherited these things, I mean it in the same way that I mean I inherited red hair or straight teeth. I mean, they pass down with the same kind of certainty. The wolves are in a little daydream I can't remember ever being without. I've known it since close to birth, back before I distinguished between story and the real world. I've watched it three to four times a day since 1965, uh, the longest running non-musical in the history of my skull. It's my own personal invention. The story of the Wolves is this. I'm a waitress in a diner. I'm, I'm wearing my mother's apron. I'm wiping down the tables when a couple comes in and my, what big eyes they have. The father, dressed in jeans and a flannel shirt, sits at a table. The baseball cap doesn't cover his long ears. The mother is wearing a pink nightgown. Her yellow eyes are nervous. He's irritated. She's trying to calm him, but he can't get over whatever it is that's got him so upset. Me. Coffee, tea, or blood? Blood. I go behind the counter and pour blood into teacups from a coffee pot my mother had for years. I take them to the table, and as I reach down... That's the first story of The Wolves. In my 20s, I moved away to grad school. Um, it was the first time in my life when I had nobody to hang out with. I did my best to meet people, but I was pathologically lonely. I was taking long walks in the evening, looking into other people's houses, convinced they were all living better than me. I was doing everything alone, eating, writing, shopping, going to movies. I looked back at Cleveland all the time. My first phone bill was $357 in 1990. I have a really strong memory of something physical growing inside me. uh, Something that had been there for a long time. Something I'd been distracted from. A hole or something like it. I started seeing a therapist. In one session I mentioned, you know, Saturdays and Sundays were always difficult when I was growing up. I avoided my mother because she was angry and uneasy. There was a kind of spell over the house. My therapist said, Well, that might be because to her, growing up, that's when everyone in her family was home. Everyone around the house in the same few rooms. It's when they had to look at each other, sit next to one another at the same table. Oh yeah, that makes sense. And you should know, when there's incest in a family, it's usually not restricted to two people. Sometime soon after their wedding night, my father said to my mother that he didn't think it was her first time. She told him it wasn't. She hoped he wasn't disappointed. Wes, my uncle, kicked out of the house at age nine and a few years older than my mom, raped her. Sue and I learned this from my father a few years before she passed away. We think she was 14, which would have made Wes 16. We know it was afternoon. We know it was a Sunday. Wes came into the dining room and told her to look out the window at Robins on the lawn. She struggled. Hearing this from my dad reminded my sister Sue that my mother had once told her that Wes had come up behind her in the dining room and hurt her. Sue thought she meant through roughhousing. I bring it up because to me, there's this huge jungle of time, these years between when my mother gets married and when I'm born and between when I'm born and when I'm paying any attention to what's going on in the world where I don't really know her. You know, it's about 20 years while she's a young mother, and I see this legion of days when she's alone at home, my dad working two jobs, when she has nobody but kids to talk to, and there's only her and silence and a set of knives and silence and lunches to make and a secret she needs to talk about. And on one day, Sue happens into the room, and she tells her 10-year-old daughter, in a way that keeps her daughter safe, that she was raped by her brother. Sue remembers going into my mother's bedroom, um, and I won't venture a date on this, but Sue's about eight, and my mom is sitting on the bed crying. Sue says, I'm sorry, mom, I won't fight with Jody anymore. And my mom says, no, no, the past is the past, and you just have to live with it. Wes, my mother's rapist, had at least three wives, and the first was 20 years older than him. He had a son with her, Randy. Randy was 17, in a band, went out to his van to get some equipment before a gig, and that's the last time he was ever seen. This was in the early 70s. My father was a Cleveland policeman, so Wes came to the house for help. My sister Sue came down our front hall, and Wes was pressed up against the wall of our kitchen My mother is behind a peninsula counter with a carving knife pointed at him, and she makes Sue get behind her. The knife stays pointed for 20 minutes in silence until my father comes home. Wes was wild. My mother was once home when he ran into the basement, tucked a gun into the rafters, and threw a bag of cash into the incinerator. He runs upstairs, changes his clothes, and five minutes later, the police are at the door. Marta vouches for him, says he's been home the whole day. When he's 17, he's helping his father install lights at the Cleveland airport. He wanders off, climbs into a plane, takes it out on the runway, and gets it off the ground. Unfortunately, my brother Joe was also entrepreneurial. Subversive. Not a criminal and not a rapist, certainly, but... Okay. Uh, my father gave each of his kids little badges to keep in our wallets that said Cleveland Policeman's son or daughter. They were to help us get out of tickets and whatnot that we might get into. Um, I was talking about them with Joe recently, and I said, I never used mine. He said, I used mine five times in one day. Does that give you an idea? I was about four and Joe about seven when my mom calls us into her bathroom and shows us a box of tampons on the back of the toilet. She says, never touch these. Okay. Now, I only know what tampons are because Joe's been using them when we make potions in our bathroom. He uses them to stir our mixtures of witch hazel, betadine, and mouthwash that have magical powers. Also, the fuse makes them ideal toy dynamite. Two days later we hear her screaming from her bathroom.
1: God damn it! Everyone in here.
0: All six of us in our pajamas file in. The Von Trapp family singer's gone horribly wrong. She's holding an empty box. Who took 'em? Who took 'em? I know I shouldn't, but I look at Joe. You. Everybody out. We file out. I look back. Joe's disappeared behind her, and her hand is already above her head. God damn it! Sue and I know that when she hit him, she was hitting Wes. No doubt she saw her brother in him. I mean, we all got hit, with the flyswatter a wooden spoon the back of her hand. But when Joe got hit, he got hit for two. September 1940, a Friday evening. It's a little muggy from a thunderstorm that passed through at dinner time. My nine-year-old mom and her sister Ruby are back from the corner store where they spent their allowances and came home with Coke. They're on the front porch enjoying a breeze. Ruby says, there were almost as many as buffalo. Donna says, really? Yeah, and Indians lived with them. Well, how? Well, they let each other live. But they're wolves. I know. It's crazy. Well, why do they come for me and you? There are girls at school that have never seen wolves. Mm. Every girl sees wolves. They just don't talk about it. Last year, Maria Patterson was in bed, and she heard a kitten in her backyard. She went outside to see if she could find it, and she heard footsteps behind her. But not like regular footsteps. Marta comes out. She tells them to put the garbage out on the curb. It's dark, and it's a long driveway. Can we do it in the morning? The truck comes at six. Please? Now, Ruby. They go around the back of the house and wheel two cans out. Ruby's eyes are everywhere. My mom stops at the curb to find Gemini. She's studying constellations. There it is, Ruby. Ruby. Ruby? Ruby's back on the porch.
1: Donna, come
0: back! Come back! Donna, run!
1: Faster!
0: She takes the front stairs two at a time, jumps inside. Ruby slams the door behind her. Bang! Thud! Hey, I want you to have something. What? Ruby gives Donna her pocket knife. That's the second story of The Wolves. In 2003, I was 38, and my best friend died suddenly from congenital heart disease. In 2005, my mom died, and sometime around here, I started envisioning... regularly, punching people in the face. I'd pass strangers on the street and see it happening, the kind of punch that surprised me, and, um, well... This was new. I never actually hit anyone, but I was thinking about it all the time. For years, I couldn't stop, and it was everyone. Strangers, friends, grocers, uh, entire invited brunches. I was looking for a fight, and I didn't just want to hit someone. I wanted to be hit. I wanted this crazy rage I was carrying around to add up to something, to have a result in the real world. Like, I wanted to be screamed at. I wanted a tire iron in the teeth. You know, I wanted blood. Then, in 2013, I was in the kitchen when my sons had an argument. One of them spit in the other's face, and I could see this other person who looked exactly like me, who was standing exactly where I was standing, grabbing him by the collar and saying, You fucking pig! I called my eight-year-old son a fucking pig. And two weeks later, I started therapy for the second time in my life. It's been a long and confusing Sunday. My mom is 14 in a field behind the house, staring up at Cassiopeia. Can you see? Donald, do you dream about me the way I dream about you? Sometimes, I wish I were with you. Can I tell you a secret? Today, in the dining room...
1: Isn't it a school night? I packed my lunch. Sorry about today. I couldn't help myself. Yes, you could. And sorry means you're not going to do it again. Look at me. Why? Look at my teeth. What about them? Look at my body. What? You seriously think I'm not going to do it again? Well, I'm done. (laughs) I love you.
0: That's the third story of The Wolves. Time passes. The girls get older. The boys get older. The father and the stepmother get older. Ruby gets married and gives birth to a son. Vera joins ninth grade choir. Ruby moves, but not so far that you couldn't drive there in 20 minutes. My mom, Donna, gets married. Ruby has her first daughter. Vera graduates from high school. My mom has a daughter. Ruby gives birth to a second daughter and a third. My mom has a son. Ruby has a son. Vera buys an aquarium. That same morning, she asks her sister, Donna, why is the box marked mother on my birth certificate empty? My mom buys a set of kitchen knives. The stepmother dies. Vera turns 25, moves to Milwaukee and starts a family. 11 years. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. My grandfather John dies in 1966 and he leaves money. Ruby is the executor of the will. There's maybe $10,000 left to be divided and it is. But there's 30,000 in a business account that isn't mentioned in the will. Ruby says that John wanted her to have that money because of everything that happened to her. Catherine, the eldest, says that if Ruby doesn't divide that money between all of them, that she'll tell Vera, who's living in Milwaukee, in 28 years of ignorance, that she's Ruby's daughter. Ruby says she'll keep the money, and Catherine calls Vera. Hi, Vera? Catherine? Yeah, how are you? Good, I'm good. Hey, your sister Ruby is your mother and your brother Dell is your father. That's incest and you're the product of it. There's nothing besides maybe murder that society holds in more contempt. Vera? Are you there? Okay, you take care. That wasn't an actual transcript. One possibility Vera, sitting on her front porch, realization after realization coming to her like locusts, bison, passenger pigeons that darken the sky. Are you serious? My sister is my mother? My brother is my father? I mean, they all knew and never told me? Another possibility. Vera says, Okay, I always knew something wasn't right, but whatever. Kind of disappointed that John's not my dad. I, I just thought he was. She has a lot on her plate. She's raising kids, and it doesn't devastate her. It affects her, but it doesn't ruin her. Hmm? Both. It was both for years. Stunned, knocked backward. Uh, distracted by her children, able to deal with it. A night crying, a day breathing easy. Telling her second husband, getting a Christmas card from Donna, on her knees in prayer, winter, silent night, spring, Father's Day, summer, resignation,
1: God, fuck this family.
0: In therapy, I started to understand that I had a really hard time showing emotion Uh, My therapist has said a thousand times that men pay a price for showing vulnerability in our culture, and I agree. I had to get comfortable with being even justifiably and understandably angry or sad. Uh, One time I said to my therapist something like, I just don't really feel like crying very often. And she said, I don't know, Mike. Sometimes I eat food, and later I have to take a shit. I, I get it. She was on to crying as a bodily need. I had gotten so repressed that I had to practice crying. Seriously, I'd lie in my room with James Taylor's fire and rain and let it fly. I I actually scheduled time to cry. Like if I had a road trip, I know I could get in a few hours and pull over if I needed to. I mean, the image of my mother's body made it easy. The blind eye, the gallbladder scar, the open heart scar, the channels on her lower legs where they'd harvested the veins. You know, I can tell that my therapist likes having me as a client. It's because I'm willing to go places I don't think most of her other clients are willing to go. Like, I'll talk about something and she'll say, can you act that out with your body? And I'm like, "Like right up on my feet. Hmm? So don't tell me all the theater school isn't paying off, okay? Once she said, hey, today, if it's okay with you, I'm going to be the wolf from the diner. Okay, you're a wolf, Sure. And I want you to be you. Right. Ready? Sure. Okay. We're at the diner.
1: Uh, Mike. How long you been working here? Uh, I think I was born here. You the owner? My mom is. You smell like her. What? You smell like her. You look like her. Well, a little. A lot. No. No. So, you don't want to be like her? Maybe. I get it. It would be horrible to be like her. No. Hey, your first words after she died were about how great it would be to be out of that fucking body.
0: Hey, I just say, can we stop? Why can't you just talk about this? Well, because when I do, I feel like I'm making my pain too important. You know, more important than it is. A lot of people suffer more than I do. You know who you sound like?
1: Yeah. She couldn't talk about it either. But nobody asked her. I'm asking you. Well?
0: Everybody's dying. Everyone around me is dying. Okay, that's a start. Who's dying? My mom. What do you want to tell her? I wish we would have acknowledged that Wes raped you. I wish we could have talked about your disappearing father. I wish I had started a conversation. Also, you wasted so much time. You kept a secret. You sulked. You should have stood up for yourself. You were a shitty diabetic. You were angry, anxious, shameful, sickly, secretive. You sat in your kitchen and withered like a plant. You should have loved me more. Come back and do it now. 1963. My sister Sue is nine. I'm not due for another two years. My parents are going to a dance, and they find sitters for their five kids. Sue, for some reason, gets to stay over at her grandparents' house. This is unusual, as she tells it. John and Marta aren't really people people. I mean, they don't hug They don't call much. Staying over is a kind of privilege none of her siblings have ever had. Vera is still living with John and Marta, but when my parents get to the house, my mom is upset to find out that Vera won't be home. I have to go to dinner with my church friends. It's a dinner they're having specifically for me. I promise I'll be home as soon as I can. My parents leave for the dance. It's 6 p.m.-ish. Nine-year-old Sue's just had dinner with her grandparents, and there's nothing to really do. They don't have a television. Marta tells her, put your pajamas on and go to bed. So, she's lying there staring at the ceiling. It's now about 7 p.m., and in comes her grandfather to tuck her in. He arranges the blanket. He makes small talk. He sits, talks for talking's sake. Sue says, he lingers. Then she hears Vera climbing the stairs. She comes into the bedroom and screams, oh no, you're not pulling any of your business. Get out right now. I'll stay here all night if I have to. Whack, whack, whack. She physically pushes him out of the room. Sue remembers thinking, wow, Vera, no wonder nobody likes you. If this is how you treat your father. You have to wonder how Vera knew that John was a danger to young girls in the pajamas, and the easiest answer is the same reason my mother was upset when she understood that Vera would be out of the house. Before Vera died, she told my sister Sue a memory. She didn't have a year. She was less than five years old, but she had a place. She opened the bathroom door at home and saw my mother, age 11, and all three of her brothers My mother was naked from the waist down. Then, in the early 90s, Sue was at the house when my mom got a call. Okay? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. When she hung up, she looked bothered. She said, well, my brother Glenn just apologized to me. For what? No response. The truth is... I'm a wolf. If you're a woman and I've met you, I've imagined having sex with you, and I can almost guarantee it. Any woman I've met, and chances are it happened the second I met you. Gross, right? Because I've met every woman in my life. I've imagined putting my penis in a million people, places, and things, and not really because I want to. I think of my body as a machine my soul drives and it's got a lot of features that I didn't necessarily order. I mean, I don't want to put my penis in socks, scarves, shoes, blankets, mittens, cotton balls, ace bandages, rolls of toilet paper, drapes, couches, carpeting sheets, drop cloths, canvases, theatrical curtains, bandanas, dish sponges, paper towels, bread boxes, toaster ovens, the microwave, the dish rack, the fridge, the oven, the flour, the sugar, the salt, the cream of tartar, (sighs) the Cleveland Zoo, hot air balloons, the Lincoln Memorial, every hole in the chain link fence surrounding my high school football field, boxes of chocolates, the case for my reading glasses, the Wall Street Journal, Liam Neeson's big hands... In 1989, my mom gets the news that Catherine, her oldest sister, is dead. They weren't particularly close or even close in age, but they kept up and she feels it. Catherine both delivered Vera and delivered Vera the news about her mother and father. My mom goes to the wake. Ruby goes. Vera, in from Milwaukee, goes. Ruby is sitting. In the funeral parlor, hands clenched, eyes averted, near fetal. It's the first time Ruby has been in a room with Vera since Vera got the news. Ruby is mourning. Vera is mourning. They see one another across the funeral parlor. They walk. Vera says, I'm sorry for your loss. Ruby says, I'm sorry. For your loss, they embrace. My mother joins them. Hey, none of us has anything to be ashamed of. Nothing, right? Not one fucking thing. Right. Right. We're survivors. We fucking survived this shit. Here's what actually happened Ruby is sitting in the funeral parlor, hands clenched, eyes averted near fetal. To cheer her up, her daughters call Aunt Vera over. They ask if she has any pictures of her kids. She takes out a little album. Oh my God, Mom. They look just like us when we were kids. Then, there's a frail, gray-skinned old man hooked up to an oxygen tank sitting in a padded chair. He's alone. Nobody is talking to him. My mom asks Vera, Who's that? It's Wes! Oh. With Catherine accepted, because she was the biggest and strongest, it's possible that every man in the family raped every girl. And look at them. They're all dead. Every one of them. My pain, the pain I go to therapy to understand and learn to live with, has everything to do with who I came from. My great-grandfather, Edward, committed suicide, and that blew my grandfather, John's family apart, and the hole in his chest and his subsequent alcoholism left his kids without any kind of love or stability And they raped their sisters and he raped his daughters. And my mother inherited secret after secret and knew she could never relax, could never be truthful about who she was, even to her husband. And that's so fucking lonely and pitiable. And I cry about it and talk about it endlessly in therapy and now in public, and it exists physically inside me. And if I take it out, it just grows back. But look, in reality, my pain is pretty simple. I didn't know my mother. I don't know her now, and no matter how many solo performances I write, I still won't. The rapes, the constant knowledge that she couldn't communicate to anyone who she was, the shame, the wolves, all kept her from passing herself on to her children. And I don't really know that three teenage boys with an absentee alcoholic father and zero structure in their lives are best understood as predators. Or that a 15 year old boy whose alcoholic father commits suicide and whose family disintegrates in an instant can be held responsible for all he does. I mean, I can see what happened to them, too. I can pretty easily see them as victims. Actually, no. Fuck my uncles. Fuck my grandfather. Fuck the great aunts and uncles who let his brothers and sisters disperse into nothing. Fuck the time period my mom grew up in. Fuck the outright oppression of having at least one kid in diapers for 15 years. Fuck the Indian killer. Fuck the silence. Fuck the secrecy. Fuck them all. And fuck me. And I want to leave you with a silver lining. And maybe one is that my siblings and I lead fairly normal lives and maybe one is that all of us, including me, felt loved by both our parents. 1990, I'm 25, about to leave for grad school. I'm walking through the woods near our house and I see my mother sitting in a little ravine. When I get close, I see her arms are bloody up to the elbows. She's in a yellow dress, soaked at the thighs. The wolf is splayed open on the ground. Mom. What are you doing? It's called field dressing. Why did you kill it? Wolves are dangerous. Why did you have Dad do it? It's my wolf. Okay. Try to remember how this works. Because someday, you'll have to do it. Why? Michael, you and I live in a wild place. And in a wild place, you have to watch. You have to listen. You have to be ready all the time. listening to Heirloom, written and performed by Mike Geither, with sound design and editing by John Watts. Heirloom was produced by Playwrights Local of Cleveland, Ohio, in partnership with Radio on the Lake Theater of Shaker Heights, Ohio. For more information, visit playwrightslocal.org. This recording is copyright 2021 by Playwrights Local. The script is copyright 2020 by Mike Geither.